I'd like Alex to join me on the stage again. Um, already introduced you, so welcome back. And uh, yeah, uh, thank you for coming back. Uh, it's a difficult spot right after lunch, but we'll uh, make it as interesting as, as possible. And uh, today I'll discuss what Qualcomm's view is on some of the network uh, evolution and some of the things that we're seeing in terms of the different deployments uh, on 5G. As I talked earlier in the panel, uh, we're very surprised on how fast 5G is rolling out around the world. And the interesting thing is there's almost uh, two 5Gs that we see, right? One with sub-6 or sub-7 is the mid-band deployment and all the other deployments that are there with middleware, specifically in North America. We're starting to see uh, a lot of interest. Actually, probably next year, there will be middleware launches in Japan, South Korea. There's uh, already some trials in Europe um, so, and Russia. So middleware, uh, we're actually seeing it. Next year, we're going to see probably most of the middleware deployments uh, around the world, almost every continent we expect there's going to be uh, millimeter wave deployments. And in terms of operators who are looking upwards of uh, 100 or more operators. In terms of devices, uh, we are also very pleasantly surprised with how many OEMs have actually come to the 5G bandwagon, and we see almost, uh, of course, almost every band out there with 5G devices not only devices, but even the other devices that are not typically launched on year one, which are uh, CPEs, uh, spots, hotspots, modules for industries. So all these are industries that are coming and just in the first year of the technology, they really want to have products that support 5G. So very happy on you know, the progress that is making in the whole ecosystem. Um, now let's talk about the network, you know, this, 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 this presentation, uh, they asked me to talk about more about networks, and specifically, I wanted to mention millimeter wave. Millimeter wave. It was discussed earlier in the uh, in the, the talks this morning, and this is a, a simulation that we did, and this addresses some of the questions that we had around uh, coverage gaps and uh, how far millimeter wave goes. So what we did early on, when we started working on millimeter wave technology, we were thinking, okay, how many sites? is an operator going to need to really cover a CD with millimeter wave? Is this realistic or not? So the first thing we did is, well, it makes sense to reuse the sites that you have. These are assets that you, you currently have. You already have 4G base stations on some of these sites. You already have backhaul. So let's take a snapshot of the current sites that an operator may have. So we actually took an actual uh, topology information from one of the uh, U.S. operators, and we picked the city of San Francisco because of the different topology. You know, we wanted to make it as realistic as possible. We could have taken Manhattan. Manhattan would have been beautiful just because of the density, but we just picked San Francisco. We took the number of sites there, and we said, okay, what if you replaced, what if you added a millimeter wave node on every one of the existing sites, which is first one, that's step one. And with that, we got actually a Pleasant number. I, we thought we were in, it in the in the 25-30%, but we were almost 62, in some cases 65% with the improved link budget on the new antenna modules. So 62% outdoor coverage, no new sites, just existing sites. So we started getting pretty excited. Now, why is that? It's because the networks are getting densified. If you think about it, you don't need 
or besides to cover San Francisco, you need it because you need capacity in San Francisco. So it's a capacity versus coverage equation. So in dense cities, there's a lot of sites. And you have to have those sites because of density, because you want to reuse the spectrum. So MediaWave actually makes use of all those sites and all that infrastructure is already there to actually be able to give the capacity that you need. Now, of course, on MediaWave, you could have up to 800 megahertz of spectrum. So you get a 5x increase in capacity. The cell edge rate, this is where you're at the edge of the cell, your worst possible coverage. It's a very healthy 300 megabits per second before you lose coverage. So it's very, very healthy at the edge of cell. And of course, in, in an average of 1.5 gigabit of peak speeds, you could be 40 gigabits per second or more if you're close to, this, to the cell. So we were very excited on this simulation and we're actually seeing numbers today. You've probably seen uh, tweets of uh, people walking around with uh, uh, speed tests. I actually have my 5G phone. I've been walking around Manhattan doing uh, speed tests and moving away and getting above uh, a gigabit per second. So I'm very happy about that. Um, now the question is, you know, the previous slide, this was outdoor. So it's not indoor coverage and a lot of the traffic is coming from indoor. So how do we solve that? And, you know, gentlemen earlier uh, today were talking about outdoor to indoor solutions. So solutions like that uh, are going to be very help, uh, helpful. But in any case, in general, minimum wave is out to out or in to in. The other uh, thing that was mentioned is once you're indoors, then you can have a very healthy coverage indoors too. So we started seeing, okay, how do we solve that? How do we actually get minimum waves indoors? And we looked at three different cases. One is indoor enterprises, the other one is venues, and the other one is uh, transportation hubs. Um, the first one where we thought was, okay, what is the most challenging thing to do is we took a, a football stadium, 100,000 people, everybody taking you know, pictures, wanting to share their experience. I don't know if you recently have been doing uh, sporting events, but sometimes you can't even send it picture up, uh, you get poor uh, download speeds. So we said, okay, how do you solve that? And the other way is beautiful for that. Um, we are able to do uh, NFL stadiums with only 15 minimal wave nodes, getting a full capacity of 100,000 people taking pictures with their multi-megapixel cameras. So that's the capacity of minimal wave. And of course, you're getting 700 megabits per second in the downlink, 100 megabits per second, uh, the worst 10% of users. You can start to see experiences like the gentleman for LGU Plus where you have multi-camera, none of that would be possible if you didn't have the capacity and the network to be able to do something like this. So only minimal way really allows you to do this. If you wanted to do this in low band, you would need probably hundreds of sectors if you could even do this, and you wouldn't be able to do those speeds. So this is the kind of power that MoonWave has. This is an example. Of course, you can apply this to anywhere where you can have you know, concerts, uh, music venues, festivals, any of these areas where you have a significant amount of demand. So 15 sites. The other uh, environment that we took was uh, a manufacturing environment. We said, okay, 
limit wave, we had a lot of questions before, you know, mean wave doesn't work, how do you deal with metal structures, you know, you put your hand and you block it, you know, it doesn't work. Uh, I think hopefully by the questions that I've been hearing today, we're past that. Now people are like, okay, how do I get the coverage? How do you um, use it? So we, we went ahead and tested on an industrial uh, environment. And we're also very pleasant surprise just because minimal wave uses reflections. So any, anywhere you have metal, minimal wave is actually reflecting. So in this facility, with only three sides, we were able to have the whole floor covered. So you can have an industrial setting where it's very economical to actually put only three sides, and you can have the whole floor covered with millimeter wave. And this is the kind of environment where um, it's going to be mixed. Sometimes you will need low speed for sensors or very low speed, but sometimes you will need a lot of bandwidth. For example, when you have to do AR, a lot of improvements in the AIXR field where people want to get instructions or want to get videos as they're working, that requires uh, high-definition video. Uh, we hear cases of uh, in automotive, in a factory, that they want to download, for example. There's a huge amount of software in a car. They want to download all that software in a car as fast as possible so that the car can keep going on the line. So a lot of cases where you need multi-gigabit speeds. And Wi-Fi just does not quite meet the, those, those requirements uh, because of uh, latency requirements, because of uh, security, or because of other reasons that they may not want to use Wi-Fi. So this really solves that equation. And finally, um, one other um, area was enterprises, uh, office buildings, uh, typical office environment. This is a site plan of our Qualcomm building in San Diego. And this, we actually wanted to test this, so we put a minimal website uh, in the lobby as you come in. And we wanted to see, okay, what's the coverage when you have, you know, drywall, glass, you know, all the indoor elements of a normal uh, office building. And again, with one site, and we actually have this, this system running today, with one site, we pretty much had coverage in that lobby, which is pretty significant. And the interesting thing is that because of the reflections, we are getting really good coverage even behind the antenna. So as you can see, all the green line is going all the way on the back lobby before the elevators. It goes into even farther back that area. So it's really expanding in just one site. So what we started looking at is, okay, if you can do this with just one site, then we went to our IT department and I said, okay, give us the locations of where do you have currently access points in the building, you know, the Wi-Fi access points. Why couldn't we just put a memory website everywhere that we have Wi-Fi access points? And when we did this study, we found that you can easily do a one-to-one -one deployment between Wi-Fi and 5G millimeter wave. And that's very advantageous because you already have power there, whether it's PoE or, 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 or uh, full power, um, it's very easy to install, so you'll be able to possibly replace 5G millimeter wave node, maybe 5G millimeter wave access point with Wi-Fi combined into where you previously had an access point and not have to worry about coverage. The difference is that the experience you're getting to multi-gigabits. And this is what will enable these cloud services that all the IT companies are looking to do, where you have more services on the cloud, connected laptops, where somebody comes in, you, can, you don't have any uh, business information on your laptop, everything is on the cloud, 
You don't have to worry about proprietary information, leaving the company, somebody stealing the laptop. Absolutely everything is in the cloud, and now you have the speed and the latency to be able to uh, use that in an enterprise environment. Um, to that effect, uh, we said, okay, well, we need uh, uh, products to do that. Uh, we do have a product, which is the FSM 100, uh, both the modem and the antenna. Uh, and again, the key thing here is that you have to be able to use low power so that you can connect Ethernet, and you can do this with just PoE. So you can do these things for indoor replacement uh, of Wi-Fi access points. So that's another thing that we're seeing on, on, on the newer wave. There have been discussions on um, CPEs and uh, fixed wireless. Uh, what do you do for, for fixed wireless, whether it's just an outside placement or, or indoor placement? So the study that we did is the same study as we did for San Francisco, where we took existing sites and we said, what if you actually put me in the web on existing sites? What is the rooftop coverage that you get, especially in dense cities? And we found that 80% of the buildings, actually this matches some of the other studies that um, were shown earlier, 80% of the buildings were covered with 1.6 gigabit per second downlink. And if you put that in rooftops, you don't have the issue of you know, uh, uh, trees blocking or other issues uh, around the way. So it provides for certain markets, we're actually looking at this in some of the Latin American markets and some of the Southeast Asian markets, where you can actually have existing sites, again, reusing the existing network that is today with the the way, providing almost fiber alternatives as opposed to having to dig and get to each building. You can go over the top with the way, you put a CPE on the rooftop, and then you come down either via Wi-Fi or just traditional uh, wireline into uh, the different homes. Um, and when you distribute across the average family in a home, uh, you get pretty decent rates, about 400 megabits per second downlink, 10 megabits per second uplink, uh, assuming a certain uh, usage pattern. Um, so it's a, a very, um, very healthy competition uh, against uh, what the typical um, cable providers uh, may offer. Um, finally, in terms of how we see the network evolving, um, this is where we are today. Right now, 5G is on the higher bands, either mid-band or mid-level wave. Uh, very soon, we're going to be able to do uh, lower band with the addition either of dynamic spectrum sharing, where you can actually get 5G, the 5G coverage that you need. And that can either be through dynamic spectrum sharing or just lower FDD bands that an operator may have or they will backate to do 5G. So we're going to see that 5G icon pretty much everywhere uh, starting next year to, to deal with the coverage. The question is, how do you, once you have coverage, how do you get the speed? Well, what you do is you start doing carrier irrigation with the mid band, and um, you start doing carrier irrigation with the mid band to get on, on some of the speeds. Of course, you're going to have the same speeds as you have when you're in the mid-way coverage, but um, you get very healthy speeds because you're doing both it's called ENDC, where you're talking both to the 4G network and the 5G network. Um, finally, this is a um, roadmap for 5G, and uh, I'm pretty excited because we're just getting started. Uh, we have uh, quite a few years to come. I remember seeing one slide that there was a 6G number somewhere out there, uh, but you know, I think we have quite a few years 
and the different releases that are coming up that are already in the works uh, with all the different um, capabilities that each release will have. So um, we're already working on, on silicon on some of these uh, new releases that are, are coming up for the next year. So this, the roadmap looks, looks very, very interesting and very exciting. Um, so with that, that's just uh, to complete. Uh, very happy with how Mean in the Wave is getting deployed. Uh, I think we have a good eye towards some of the solutions around indoor deployments. I think outdoor, I don't think there is a, uh, you know, that much of an issue around outdoor on areas that we have quite a bit of density. Uh, we hear operators doing these gigabit zones, basically where you go. There might be, you know, like a time square. You go in, you have gigabit uh, capability, and we expect that will continue to grow uh, across the multiple regions. Private networks, we also see that very important, like I mentioned in my uh, in the factory slide, uh, fixed wireless access. So all these different industries are coming up, and uh, I'm happy to uh, say that we have the, the right products to actually be able to meet uh, these different demands. So thank you very much, and any questions we can do at the panel. Right? Yeah, let me ask a few questions now. We'll do a quick, quick, small panel here. Um, so let me just like to ask a couple of questions to you, Alex. And I've seen those simulations that you have shown before um, at the Mobile World Congress. Uh, you, you did it for a number of cities. And when when you look at the, the, the simulation, what I found quite interesting was that you actually deployed or you simulated with Minimeter Wave on the macro grid. So it was not a, a small cells deployment, but you had the millimeter wave on the macro grid. Now, is that a use case or a deployment case that you that you see materialize in the next years, or is it more the, the, the traditional small cells approach? Yeah, it, it was uh, it was actually uh, both. Actually, we took every site that the operator had, whether it was macros or small cell, that they were outdoor. So we actually combined both because we figured if you already have an asset. If you're already paying a lease on top of some rooftop, or whether it's a macro site, or you have an asset and backhaul, then it shouldn't be that difficult to actually add millimeter wave. So we took the whole network as it is today on 4G, and that's where we put uh, millimeter wave. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, um, and I think from there to expand, I know the there's a lot of uh, um, uh, movement uh, by different government to actually. Um, allow the location of additional small cells on street infrastructure, mm -hmm. so that can only uh, help being yeah. able to facilitate the additional small cells. Yeah, but when you speak to, to, to operators, and I assume that you have a lot of such conversations, uh -huh. do, you, do you actually discuss the deployment of millimeter wave on the macro itself? Of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. When, yeah. Uh, I don't really see a difference between macro and small cell. For me, it's just one network. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really dynamic. Sometimes you turn off macros because you need the capacity, and uh, it, it just evolves into small cells. It's really dynamic, so we really see it as okay. as, as one big network. Um, but yeah, obviously, lots of discussions about what is my network today, uh, where do I put millimeter wave based on what assets they have available, mm -hmm. and then what else needs to be there based on their business needs where they want to actually have the coverage, the capacity. Yeah. Coverage is not an issue, it's, it's the capacity. Yeah. Okay. 
So when uh, when I remember at the beginning of uh, the discussions around 5G, everybody was talking about millions away from small cells. Mm-hmm. Now, when when you look at the deployments around the globe, maybe apart from the US, it's it's a lot of C-band spectrum deployed on the macro grid. So something mm-hmm. which is maybe also easier to deploy on existing grids. So do you see in the future, in the coming years, that there's a switch where you know, you actually will start to deploy a lot more on small cells. I mean, is the macro, you know, kind of like also uh, at the end of uh, further densification, or how do you think that will evolve? Um, just because of the capacity that you need, it's natural that the networks will need to be densified. There's no other way around it. It's, it's physics. Uh, you need to be able to reutilize the spectrum, you need to lower power and be able to reutilize the spectrum in in as many places as you can. That's how you will absorb the capacities. So yes, there will be a trend to go from very high coverage sites to a lot of small cell capacity sites as the demand goes in, which goes along with the consumption, and somebody was saying that earlier, the consumption of the data getting as close to where you actually need it. So it really goes along the lines of, let's put the data consumption, let's have the consumption being very close to the phone. You need less power to do that. You need, uh, you can reutilize the spectrum. You can put mobile edge compute. You can do all kinds of things as you get closer to the edge through identification. So that's a natural evolution of a network. Okay. Now you showed you showed a lot of these different venues like stadiums um, or the private networks or if you also take malls or whatever, um, where it's it's probably more natural to deploy the small cells, right? Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned indoor traffic or indoor and we know that I don't know, seventy percent of indoor traffic or traffic, cellular traffic is consumed indoor. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I talk or when I think about my home, what's going to look like in the future? How do I get all this 5G into my home? Is it going to be like this sandwich solution at every window, or you know, what, what do you think will happen? Like when you think about the home, the homes. Well, <clears throat> I think on the homes, you can do it two ways. You can try to get. Um, Minimal wave all the way in, or you can try to bridge with Wi-Fi if that's the right architecture for the home. Uh, you know, you have Wi-Fi six coming up, where there's a lot of bandwidth, so um, there is a possibility. Of course, these low latency capabilities and some of the capabilities that five G brings, you will not be able to do with Wi-Fi. But I think there will be a variety of solutions to try to get all the five G in, whether it's through the window, whether it's to your rooftop, whether it's to the pole next to you, and then from there you eventually go in, uh, or directly CPEs inside um, uh, through fiber, and then you rebroadcast 5G inside the home. Um, many variety of things, uh, like today, there's many ways mm-hmm. to, to get to your router, um, but the key is uh, really there's going to be a 5G site very close to you where you can do these things, and then how do you bridge indoor? Mm-hmm. I'm really excited about the enterprise case. The home is a little bit different because some of the capabilities might not be as needed as in an enterprise environment. The, the amount of capacity, your family, you know, you may have 
four or five people inside a home is not as if you have a big enterprise. Um, so you might be able to solve the home in different ways. Okay. Very good. All right. So let's uh, move to the next uh, speakers. Thank you. So uh, we like to, to get deep into the technology. And uh, I told you this morning we wanted to cover all, uh, all the chains. So I'm very, very, very pleased to have uh, Sanjay with us today. He's the chief, uh, chief marketing officer of 2.6. And uh, I think uh, I'm not going to try and explain what you guys do, okay? <laughs> and I'm going to start by asking you a very simple question. Why are you called 2.6? Okay, so um, when the company was founded in uh, 1971, the, the material system the company was founded on was a material called cadmium, cadmium telluride. And it belongs to a class of inferred materials, uh, zinc selenide, cadmium telluride, zinc sulfide. So basically, these were uh, two six materials. So for which the two refers to uh, the, the group two B, and the six refers to group seven A in the periodic table of elements from you know Chem 101 for for some of us, uh, and in a, in a way to sort of pay homage to those uh, material systems. Uh, the company was called two six, but. Having said that, it, it's still a very important part of our business. Uh, this is uh, 10 micron uh, laser optics for carbon dioxide lasers for industrial applications. So, so I am right, um, probably understanding that you have, uh, the core of what you do um, uh, is materials. So maybe could you, could you, before we get into the specifics of 5G, and, sure. and I think we, we, you will all be amazed by how much materials matter in 5G from, from the very beginning to the very end of the network. But before we go, we go there, can you give us a bit of uh, uh, la, like a teaching about materials and these materials you're working for on what makes them so useful first? Okay. So, I mean, we, you, you can see our engineered materials. We, we have over two dozen material systems. So these are unique, uh, uh, complex uh, material systems. But, but really, th these materials underpin uh, all of our transformations that we are, many of our transformations that we are talking about, including 5G. So if, if you look at the slide here, it talks about uh, materials in aerospace, semiconductor equipment, uh, 3D sensing, uh, compound semiconductor materials, datacom wireless, uh, Indian phosphide, gallium arsenide, again, compound semiconductor materials. So we, we've got, you know, materials that matter is, is our tagline for our, for our company. And, and that's at the core of 2.6. Now, we, uh, we, we sell all the way down from the, the core materials platforms to, to subsystems and systems. So components, modules, um, integrated modules, uh, subsystems, and even system-level products to uh, to, to our customers, so it, it, materials really underpin our uh, our company. And um, and so and, and these materials, I imagine, if uh, if we need two six to uh, uh, to get them into the market, that probably means they are challenging to uh, to manipulate or to manufacture. So, can you tell us about what are like your what makes you different and uh, what, what makes you win in, uh, in that field? Yeah, sure. I mean, we've got, we've got, I'm not going to go through all this, but we've got uh, a number of material systems. So let me take a couple of examples. Uh, um, maybe the top one uh, under automotive, silicon carbide. Uh, we've been investing in silicon carbide for 30 years. It took us, I'm not saying it, take, it took us 30 years, but a large fraction of the time. These are complex systems uh, to, to grow and develop. And, and really, silicon carbide, 
uh, is, is key for power electronics that go into 5G. For RF amplifiers, we are, uh, we, we are uh, the leader in, in terms of RF uh, substrates for uh, um, silicon carbide substrates for RF applications. Uh, so it, it, some of these, uh, diamond is another one where we, uh, uh, we make these unique windows based on diamond. I mean, diamond is a material, if, if, if I were a design engineer, uh, it's, it's, it's got superlative properties in any property that you take, whether it is mechanical properties or optical properties, electronic properties. If I'm a design engineer and I want the best material in the world for any application, I would say make it with diamond. But it's not easy. It's, it's hard to get. It's hard to make. Uh, so, for example, we make, uh, uh, in the area of diamond, we make polycrystalline diamond windows for uh, EUV lithography. So this is 7 nanometer technology. That is, that is critical for 5G. I mean, all the data finally has to go through fiber optic networks, and these transceivers work. The DSP that, that is needed for these transceivers is based on 7 nanometer technology. So, uh, that, so we, for example, these, these windows are, are the very high power laser power goes through these windows. The windows cannot deform. They have to be, um, they have to be perfectly aligned. You know, there's a lot of the highest thermal conductivity, so you can take the, um, uh, the power out of, the, of, of these windows. So that's, um, that, that's another, another example. I mean, there are plenty, but, uh, you know, let's start with just a couple. Okay, so, so, so that makes sense. And I keep in mind that you guys make diamonds, which... Uh, we do make sound, diamonds, yeah. Which sounds very exciting. Uh, so, so maybe we could get into uh, more into the specifics of 5G. Sure. If, if you um, if you want to change slides. If, or, um, okay. Well, depends on your the next one. Next yeah, sure. Uh, where do you want to start on 5G? Maybe maybe this end to end. So yeah, I mean 5G again. We we got a comparison. I mean, we spend a lot of time on the on the radio side uh, between 4G and 5G, but. But ultimately, every radio signal has to go through a fiber optic link, and it starts at the bottom of the pole. And, uh, and if we compare 4G with 5G, uh, the, the data rates that come out of the tower, um, in the, which we call front hall, so basically, once the, the light is converted into, the, once the signals are converted into, into, into light, um, typically it's in 4G, it's 10 gigabits per second. In 5G, it's hundreds of gigabits per second, and and then you can imagine these tributaries as they as they go to the bigger rivers, uh, the, those data rates are, are are much higher, you know, terabits per second kind of data rates. And 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 two six actually, we make products starting at the um, uh, at the tower. I mean, we make silicon carbide wafers, which is uh, which is critical for for RF amplifiers. So our products start at the tower and then go all the way through the backhaul and and the core network. Uh, we make transceivers. We make uh, um, uh, maybe the next slide has a little. So uh, I mean, this is um, a little cartoon that shows a tower on one hand and a submarine link in the in the, in the sort of the middle, uh, and then it goes to let's say another another continent and then goes to a tower. That entire trail, we've got products everywhere. So starting, we, we talked about, uh, you know, I, I just mentioned the, the towers. Uh, and then once you come to the aggregation links, uh, the routing of the optical signals in the, in the metro aggregation, all the transceivers that do that, uh, metro core coherent transceivers uh, that, are, that are critical. So here we are talking about 400 gigabits per second uh, type transmission. Uh, and then into the submarine networks, we've got, uh, we make... Uh, uh, pumps, uh, pumps for amplifiers, for submarine amplifiers. Uh, those, those products actually sit in the bottom of the ocean uh, and, and connect these submarine links. So, so from, a, uh, from an applicability, I, I don't think there's any other 
uh, transformational sort of mega trend that is so pervasive to 2.6 in terms of opportunities. Uh, that shows all the different, uh, mostly in the optical domain, but shows all the different products that we uh, that we sell into into this marketplace. So maybe if we focus on uh, on radio first. Um, so you mentioned silicon carbide. Uh, maybe you can touch on uh, gallium nitride as well. And so what what is changing? We move from 4G to 5Gs, and suddenly these compound materials yeah. need to replace silicon. Can you take us sure. through the logic here? Um, so, so compound semiconductors in, in general are 100 times uh, better in terms of electron mobility, uh, uh, as you know, for compared to silicon. They allow us to do things that cannot be done with silicon. Compound semiconductors emit light, they detect light, so they're critical for fiber optics. Um, so the, the, the thermal conductivities are higher, uh, the, the ability of handling higher frequencies, uh, lower power consumption, all this means it's very compact electronics. 5G is not going to be possible without silicon carbide, let me say it that way. Mm -hmm. You just cannot do 5 I mean, the, the kind of speeds that you're talking about are not going to be possible without, without silicon carbide, uh, as an example of a, of a material system. Mm -hmm. uh, we do have um, uh, um, gallium nitride on, on silicon carbide uh, uh, device level activity going, it's, it's fairly public information as well. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so we, you know, uh, power electronics for the RF is, is, is quite important to us. From, a, so, from an RF perspective. So in, in these slides, um, uh, Alex showed about uh, uh, covering San Francisco with uh, uh, very high frequency, very sure. high data, data rate uh, sure. antennas. That means in all these antennas, silicon is going to be replaced, is being replaced by it's silicon been, it's carbide. It's happening now. I mean, it's, it's not now. just for 5G, it's 4G. I mean, there's a lot of silicon carbide uh, power amplifiers that are going into 4G as well. So mm -hmm. um, for sure, yeah. And, and, and so, where are we in this uh, in this journey where silicon is being replaced by silicon carbide and gallium nitride on silicon carbide? For 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 radio application, it's it's happening today. Mm -hmm. the, the the bigger application for silicon carbide is electric vehicles. It's not. I mean, there's a five G conference, but that's that's happening as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and and we believe that it's they're they're going to be. It's it's just a matter of time over which pretty much all power electronics will will be will be silicon carbide based. And can you can you can you help us understand um, the time scale of this uh, of this industry? I, uh, the CEO of uh, of Infineon always likes uh, likes to to crack a joke and say, "Oh, uh, so Infineon is doing uh, power uh, semiconductors as well." And he likes to say, "Oh, I have my Moore's law as well." It's just uh -huh. it's not eighteen months; it's ten years. So, so, so why are these technologies that are you say a hundred times better than silicon? Why have we been working already 30 years on them, and why are they uh, growing in the mix and becoming necessary only today with the late stage of 4G and 5G? Yeah, yeah no, that's, 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 that's a good question. I mean, everybody will have their, their perspective. Um, so so to, to some extent, you know, the market demands the technology, right? I mean, you can, you can, have, you can develop technologies and looking for applications and, and the other way, and, and, and I think the two need to meet, and, and when they intersect, that's when great things start to happen. Uh, we've been investing. I mean, this was, you can imagine, uh, I don't know when we, we bought our first uh, um, reactor and, we, and we, when we did our silicon carbide. It was long before my time at, at 2.6. But at 30 years ago, if, if you look at it, okay, now we are talking about, I mean, 4G, 3G, 2G was not even conceived at that point in time. Uh, so you're talking about a conviction that, okay, power electronics is going to need better materials and silicon carbide is a great material. Uh, the next question is, uh, you know, is it going to be diamond next? And we think so. 
Diamond is going to, you know, whatever is happening with silicon carbide today, diamond's going to follow. Uh, hopefully in my lifetime, but you know, but it, there, there is going to be a, there is going to be a, a time for all of these, and and we we, we continue to invest in 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 that in those types of material systems. So we hear like for those who who follow more broadly silicon carbide and compound uh, materials, we we hear like like growth is being constrained. So we need silicon carbide for 5G, but as you mentioned, in electric cars as well. Sure. Uh, so, so why is it so? Why are we supply constrained? Why does it take so long to build up manufacturing capacity it's, for these components? Um, it, it, it is a tough material to grow. It's uh, it, it's it's a material, a traditional crystal growth. I mean, just starting with the with the, with the wafer, right? I mean, ultimately mm -hmm. that's that's your substrate. It's a tough material to grow. It's it doesn't you you cannot grow it like how you'd grow silicon. Uh, it's there's no liquid phase. It's a vapor phase deposition. It's uh, it's a process that requires over 2,000 degrees centigrade. It's just a, it's a complicated material system. It takes a long time for for people to get good at it. Uh, um, and and it's going to take. Uh, I I think the people who are good at it are are going to drive the the capacity now, which we're doing, and you know. Um, a, a couple of others are, are doing as well. Um, over time, yeah, sure, there'll be more more competition and you know more people. But for now, um, uh, I, I think the the demand is there, so I think the the the, 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 the expansion is going to happen. Mm -hmm. It's happening as we speak. I mean, our silicon carbide business is you know it's going through a, a little bit of a hockey stick ourselves. So. Yeah. Now, maybe very so. Um, I mean, silicon carbide remains very relevant as well. Sure. So if we move to to optical networks, so that's a critical part of 5G. Uh, we, we hear all, about all these uh, gigabytes at every site and things like that, so that generates sort of traffic. So can you take us through uh, how this is impacting uh, the optical network and uh, is, is that calling in new uh, materials as well? So um, the, the, the optical communication market has been Growing, yeah, you know, for the past 10, 15 years, we've got it. it, it just to, to a lot for for a long time, it looked like the tech, the technology was so far ahead of the demand, mm -hmm. right? But now with 5G, I think that uh, the the demand will be, you know, the technology is actually going to keep pace with the demand. Uh, the the world is moving towards 400 gigabits per second, um, and and specifically to for 5G from a 5G perspective, uh, there are two ways of looking at it. One, you got to get the core network ready. For all the all the traffic that you know, all the new towers and the new 5G towers, it's going. The other is okay. You build the towers and then you slowly upgrade. I mean, we we've got the world's networks are so different, region to region, even within the country, that there is no one size fits all. Uh, but 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 essentially, you can think of it as um, you know, if somebody gets a gigabit per second on the phone, all of these need to go to the tower, and then from the tower it goes to the the what we call maybe the. Uh, Better slide. Well, maybe I can. Can I go back to the? Yeah. Well, okay. No, this is fine. This is one. This is fine. I mean, this is uh, the, the very top of the slide. I, I just show you uh, a sort of a progression, right? So starting with the with the tower to to the first point of aggregation, the transport node. Then it goes into a metro. You see that little ring? That's uh, you know that that's different locations here, right here in Manhattan, for example. Uh, and then you get a, a larger metro aggregation, and then then the trans. Uh, continental, the the intercountry uh, core core network. But uh, if you look at it, it's all optical. As soon as it leaves the tower, it's all optical. Um, and 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 essentially, it's talking about the speeds going from 
um, you know, essentially an order of magnitude higher. Mm-hmm. Starting, you know, if it's 10G today, 10 gigabits per now gigabits per second, but if it's 10 gigabits per second uh, from the tower uh, with 5G, it's hundreds of gigabits per second from the tower. So every point of aggregation is going through an expansion in in the bandwidth that's required. Um, and and uh, I'm, I'm, this is again just to show you all the different products that, but at the, the very top are transceivers. I mean, these are the the workhorses. This is what takes a signal, takes your different uh, uh, channels of light from one location to another, and then aggregates it and gets handed off to the next one, and 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 so on and so forth. Um, so from a, from a two six perspective, you know, coming back and sort of materials that matter. So in each of these. Uh, areas of products, we are completely vertically integrated. We make, I mean, our the joke is most of our products. I mean, the 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 the, 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 the what we buy is really gases and and powders. Uh, whether it's a transceiver, uh, we make our own ICs, we make our lasers, we make our detectors. Uh, all all of the uh, the the rest of the uh, equipment there. It's it's how you manage light, how do you amplify light, how do you um, uh, you know how do you switch light. Uh, coherent transmission and 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 all of that. So, um, just to give you a scale, uh, I, I got some some numbers over the next ten years. Uh, just for 5G front hall worldwide, you're going to need 240 million transceivers, as many as 240 million transceivers. I mean, that's a staggering number. The world's market for for transceivers today is 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 a, is a small fraction of that today. So uh, that shows. I mean, that's that's not that's just front hall transceivers. So that just talks about from the tower to the first aggregation point. Now, when you go to the core, uh, you're you're talking about several millions of 100 gigabits per second, 200 gigabits per second coherent transceivers. So these are transceivers that that take light over hundreds of kilometers, thousands of kilometers. And then in the in the mid hall, you're you're talking 50 million, uh, as many as 50 million transceivers. So the it's just the scale is staggering, but in terms of uh, technology, I, we believe the technology is already here from an optics perspective, not, not from the radio side. But, so I think a lot of the innovation has been the radio. The optics is already here. It's, it's waiting to ramp up, if you will. Okay. So we've been talking for, for 20 minutes about materials that are uh, necessary to 5G, materials that without which 5G is not possible. Uh, and I can't... Um, I can't help, uh, you know, looking at that and, and looking at the current situation and the tensions with China and bans and the uh, trade debates. And you've also said it's very difficult to grow these materials and you need 30 years to learn how to do it. Not all of them. <laughs> some, some of them, at least. Some of them. So, so what's your perspective on, uh, on the global situation? What happens next with uh, what's happening today with China? What happens next? Um, do they need to grow their own Value chain for that? Do they have it already? How do you see the market? Well, well today, today they, they don't have it, as 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 you know. And uh, of course, um, yeah, yeah, in terms of investment, I mean, the, the Chinese government can can invest and and can accelerate. I mean, mm-hmm. there's certain things that can that can get better with time, certain things that cannot. So, to the extent that they can put resources, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure they'll they'll make progress. But but the um, but but again, there is the five uh, G is just one topic. There there are various technologies where the whole world is not in, you know it, 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 the interalliances there on most of the technologies in the world. So it's not. So I don't think it's anything unique to five G. It's just it's, it's in the news. It's in the world. So I think uh, there's a there's a lot of attention to it. Mm-hmm. 
And, and in the short term, do you think there is, are there, do you foresee like risks of uh, supply constraints that could like uh, limit development of 5G in China versus the rest of the world? 5G is, is a, or? yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. 5G clearly is is uh, is right front center of of uh, China's growth strategy. I mean, it's been very mm-hmm. well. Uh, Publicize it's 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 one of those things that that they're going to do and and they'll uh, you know at, as of now we uh, at at that level we we're actually fairly lower in the food chain we don't sell at the at the highest levels on the RF side for mm-hmm. example the optical side we do and and that really we haven't been you know there there, there are no issues for for our business in, into that part of the world. Uh, at the RF side, we don't sell at that level, so we really don't know okay. what, what I mean, because we don't we don't make uh, we don't make power electronics uh, end products, right? You only sell the, the substrates. We, we sell substrates and okay. the lower in the food chain. Okay, and so and so, so for now, like uh, tensions have not gone that down. Right, right, in right, the, right, right. In okay. Um, there is one thing we haven't talked about in okay. 5G. It's actually uh, it's actually use cases because you you are also a lot in. Uh, Involved in use cases like uh, uh, your materials are necessary for 3D sensors and, and other similar components. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, we uh, there were some presentations earlier about uh, uh, connected cars and, and and 3D sensors and so on. The the, the nice thing is we like the, the more data, the, the better it is. Uh, uh, so uh, the 3D sensors, for example, just do you know they they create a lot lot of data that uh, that, that is cool. Um, so we make, um, uh, you know, we've got a material system called gallimarsonite mm-hmm. uh, with which you can make these really tiny lasers uh, that are, are useful for, uh, so these arrays are, are critical for 3D sensing. Uh, so things like uh, uh, Face ID and, and, and those types of applications. So that's just one part of applications. We also have, uh, we're also actively involved in LiDAR where you need higher power lasers, indium phosphides, another uh, material system. Uh, we, are, we are working with uh, with customers on uh, uh, in cabin monitoring. So these are 3D sensors that are looking at the at the driver's expression. Suppose he just had a fight with his boss, and you know the, the, his his pupils are dilated, and he's you know the, the system says, "Hey, slow down." So we we are actually uh, making uh, we are involved in those kind of design uh, activities today. So 3D sensing is a uh, it's not directly related to 5G, but it's uh, we certainly. We we hope it drives a lot of demand, but we are actively involved. That's a different uh, part of our uh, uh, different vertical. Tucson plays in about eight different market verticals. Uh, so consumer electronics is where a lot of this automotive, okay. uh, mm-hmm. telecommunications, data comm, life science, you know. So. And so maybe one uh, one final question. Sure. Uh, so so you exposed the most almost everywhere in the chain. What, what's your what's your growth outlook when you look at your addressable market? What kind of growth do you expect? In which uh, in which verticals? What, what are like the main drivers of growth? Yeah, I mean, I I I, the, the, I I do have a slide, but it doesn't talk about all the markets we're in. This it just talks about 5G. Yes. Uh, but it, this is sort of just related to 5G. So if you look at the our silicon carbide uh, substrate business, uh, you, you know that that's that's growing at a 60% CAGR, and, mm-hmm. and that's all. A lot. Of, okay, now there's a combination of 5G and, but this is only the 5G part. This is the RF part. I've not talked about a EV uh, electric right. vehicles mm-hmm. part. The the transceivers are growing at the front hall transceivers. That's a uh, in 2022. Is, it's going to be a, a bigger than two billion dollar market. It's it's tiny today. It's maybe a few hundred million. That's growing at a 120 percent CAGR again related to 5G. Uh, and then the overall optical communications, the backbone network. Uh, that's that's growing at a, at a at a smaller pace, maybe like ten percent. There are other markets that that are growing. Growing. I mean, our uh, 
PUV lithography market. I mean, that's again going at a hundred percent carrier. You know, all the all the sort of the the 5G 3D sensing 3D sensing markets growing at 60 80 percent carrier. We we've got more uh, phone manufacturers and 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 automotive makers really embracing 3D sensing technology, not just for security but for monitoring, driver monitoring. Uh, you know that that, that I just spoke about. Uh, then you've got LiDAR, which is, uh, we believe that's a, a calendar 2022 event uh, in terms of volume, but we're, we're involved in a lot of design and mm-hmm. uh, not just on lasers, but also all optics. We make uh, filters and mirrors and windows. And so the entire uh, uh, ecosystem around a 3D sensing uh, system, if you will. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. They're all very fast growing markets, pieces of the of them are. Sure. Excellent. Sanjay, thank you so much. For your time. All right, thank you. Thank you. So I changed my question list for my next guest. I, I don't want to embarrass you with material science. Uh, so I'm very, very pleased to, uh, to welcome Thierry. Um, as you may uh, guess by the sound of his first name, we, we've known each other for a very long time. And uh, Thierry is uh, an EVP at uh, uh, ITO Star, and he's a chief strategy officer and you're also in charge of products. Yes. Right. So so I think it's a it's a good place to, to start. What what's LTO your start? What's your product? What are you doing? That's a good uh, <clears throat> it's very good timing because of five G. But I think it's maybe a good timing because frankly I've been uh, participating in an industry on the vendor side that doesn't look so attractive either from an investor point of view or even you can make the case from an operator point of view how we can end up in, in a situation where we are talking of uh, 3G to 4G and you know, 5G, and you have only a choice between basically three vendors and some other dynamics that uh, restrict even the participation of uh, some vendors coming from other parts of the world. So <clears throat> I think for us it was a situation, and some of you may know that the team that is doing Altio Star, and I've been in this industry for some time, I was also at some point uh, in the most admired corporation on planet Earth, which was called Motorola. So when someone mentioned this morning that he's, he's been in the most admired you know, company, you have to be careful. That's maybe the, <laughs> the, the next the indication of something that happened next. Uh, so um, so what, uh, what we believe when we did uh, the previous startup, so the team using Altiostar, they already started networks. And people may not remember that the packet course was a gateway, which is really you know, anchoring, you know, setting up the call and managing the subscriber. Uh, when we move from voice to data, so moving from voice to, to 2G to 3G, there was a need for a new generation of packet core. But the architecture at that time and the way the 3GPP has defined uh, the specs make it that you have to buy everything from the same vendor. So basically from the radio, the baseband to the packet core, everything has to come from, again, one vendor. So at that time, we, we managed to decouple uh, the packet core from the radio domain, and, and after we went public in 2007, uh, spending, uh, we're happy to come to, uh, to New York for that, uh, we were acquired by Cisco. I mean, Stanford was acquired by Cisco, and Cisco had since that day a packet core uh, business. So already at that time, while mentioning this, that was because it's the same team, so, you know, we have done this, and again, it was a situation, it cannot be done, it's too difficult, it's not going to work, all of this uh, we have heard before. So we had already the vision back in uh, 2009 that if we can meet two uh, criteria. One, is there going to be some technology innovation 
breakthrough innovation that can really change the architecture and change completely the way you can design, build, and manage a network. And obviously, this is for us uh, at that time uh, the assumption that virtualization, if we can virtualize the software with all this equipment that is at the site, so you have to understand that today every mobile network, every cellular network, not only has a tower with a radio and the antenna and the feeders, but a lot of equipment, basically a mainframe, a mainframe with custom uh, software on custom hardware. So we say we have to, to see if we can change that. We knew we were proceeding that there will be an opportunity to leverage two things. One, there's going to be off-the-shelf, commercial off-the-shelf hardware that will be able to really manage the software requirements. Because this is pretty demanding. We are talking about real-time processing, a lot of traffic, a lot of subscribers, very challenging. We believe that, and you heard it from uh, Intel and Qualcomm, that the hardware roadmap will be able to give us a horizontal platform that we can leverage. The second thing that we uh, identify that can we also leverage open source software, and that's where the Red Hat topic came this morning. So this was the foundation. So if we can take off-the-shelf uh, hardware plus leveraging open source software for virtualization and now going to containerization, still open source with Kubernetes, and can we then, which was kind of completely inconceivable, to make this radio very complex hardware and software closed box, make it an application running on top of this infrastructure. And this is basically what Altiostar uh, has done, and at least being the first one to do it. We didn't ask for permission. We got uh, a lot of funding. You know, this is a problem to have a startup in this space. It takes time, and time is cash. You need to have a lot of funding, but you need to put this in perspective. Altiostar, has raised $300 million. We have spent $230 million to date. We are com comparing and competing against companies that just for 5G have spent between $6 to $10 billion. So we are disrupting already the R&D cycle, and we have been blessed after incubating, developing this technology with the support of some strong uh, investors. Cisco was the first one, Fidelity, Qualcomm, Tech Mahindra, and more recently, obviously, with a decision made in Japan that a company which is not coming from the telco space decided to enter the market, that was just at the time where not only we had developed the technology, people need to understand that it's not just a piece of, you know, software with line of code. We have more, code, more lines of code in the QA of our software than the software itself. Mm -hmm. And we have spent $35 million just for the lab equipment. So even if we just do the software, because it's a software-centric architecture, we are able to put in our lab all the elements from the radios to the, to the OSS so we can certify all the elements that will run on this uh, more horizontal architecture. Okay. So if I summarize it in a few words, uh, there has been an infection point in silicon, in hardware, in processing power. Uh, that allows you to develop a mobile network in software only. Uh, that's where you are today, and now you're starting uh, to deploy it. And, and you mentioned Japan and uh, Rakuten, which is uh, now, if I'm correct, uh, uh, a very significant client and also uh, uh, a shareholder. So two questions. The first one is, uh, what's the point at the end of the day? Why, why, why is it good to do that? And my second question is, if you could just tell us how things are going with Rakuten and 
uh, what's the progress today? Is, uh, when, when shall we expect uh, to, to see like the, the large-scale proof of concepts uh, uh, out? Yeah, I think so. As I mentioned, obviously we have now uh, new possibilities. I say, you know, the progress on the hardware side and the open source, the software, you know, phenomenon bringing this commoditization of many uh, many elements of the stacks. But I think what is more important that it has been coming through the, the discussion today is that if you really want to deliver 5G, you cannot just take the existing model, bring the architecture, the way we build networks, and when you look at all the use cases that you need to serve for 5G, the network has to be able to really be more uh, cost-efficient. So it has been certainly bringing, because if you need, if you catch back with 10, that's where I'm going to give more detail, but the scale of doing not just 50,000 uh, uh, macro sites, but they will have, just for 5G, 1.5 million cells. But now the, the network itself and the way it's going to expand is a complete other dimension with many more devices, more traffic, but also other different use cases. What you see today is not, I mean, it's not 5G, okay? It's a, being a 5G in the sense that you guys start to give you the speed, but the real 5G will be when you have a standalone, so the complete end-to-end -end from the radio to the core that you can do end-to-end -end network slicing. Because if you want to serve all those beautiful use cases, the verticals, you need to have a network which is going to be able dynamically and completely automated to guarantee that you are going to give this QoS for this particular vertical. And if I'm the enterprise, I don't want to see all this equipment on my you know, campus or premises. So you have to give me more concept of 5G on demand or 5G on service. So this, all this promise of 5G is driving the need for a very different architecture, but also a very different model where we can have more of a platform where people will be incentivized to invest on. And this is what has not happened today, uh, because today it's more of a closed uh, you know, environment and you have to rely on a few vendors in order even to, 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 to drive your own services roadmap. So we need to change uh, this, uh, this architecture and, uh, and I think by making it more uh, software-centric and software-defined is the only way uh, to really uh, create uh, this uh, new uh, situation for for the future. Okay, very good. So Rakuten, Rakuten, an update. So Rakuten has been the elephant in the room for for us, as uh, many obviously have been watching what's happening. It came as a kind of a big news in Barcelona uh, when Rakuten made the announcement that they are going to enter the market and they are going to build a network in a completely different way. Uh, from the traditional way. In fact, uh, uh, at some point, they are going to go with uh, the traditional way, which most likely they will have done with Huawei, which, not surprised, was maybe the, the cheapest at that time. But Rakuten, first, it's an e-commerce, fintech, you know, companies have a lot of uh, content, and they believe, so this is the strategy of, uh, of, uh, of their uh, CEO and founder, Mikitani uh, San, I said, for my business strategy, I can no longer rely on the MVNO model, which was I'm you know, getting connectivity, so the link between my content to my end users just by paying KDDI. And they say, no, it's not giving me what I need. It's too expensive. I don't have the velocity to create all the services I want. So rightly or wrongly, the future will tell. They decided that it was absolutely strategic for them to have their own mobile network. 
So they are not just entering the market because they want to disrupt uh, KDDI and NTT. It's very clear that Japan, like the US, like a few other markets, the price of mobile service subscription is pretty high. So I'm sure that they're going to also be able to enjoy uh, when their network is going to be at scale, uh, uh, the, the fact that they will be able to attract a lot of users because they will be able to, able to provide the service a, a much cheaper. But for us, it has been really to, uh, when the decision was made, we started to work in October. In fact, Altiostar being a key element of this new architecture, but you know, we are not recreating another Nokia or another Ericsson or another Huawei. We don't need to. This is an open architecture with an open interfaces, which means open supply chain. So what you have now is many different participants. So instead of having the three vendors that we are left with, basically, now you have many, many companies that can participate. In fact, if I give you a, a data point, when uh, before, at the time the Rakuten decision was made, maybe we had eight to 10 companies who were part of this new supply chain from chipset to system integration. As of today, and as the Rakuten itself has had, but there's more than Rakuten, I will explain, we have more than 40 companies, four zero, just in 18 months. Just show the power of when you go with an open architecture, open platform, how it does allow new participants, because there are new participants to, that are coming, because now if you move, as we have done, all this equipment from the radio domain, from the site to the cloud, obviously you have companies who are in, already in the cloud, who are coming from the IT side, who are able to, to participate. So Rakuten has been a, an extreme focus for us uh, to the point where it was extremely difficult even to entertain discussion with other operators. We had to deliver what, because no network has been built, even if they are a little bit late. I think they were probably too ambitious. I think they are running in some issues to get all the sites uh, ready. Uh, as you know, Japan is going to host, Tokyo is going to host the Olympic Games next year. So there is definitely a shortage for, you know, civil works working. Uh, so they have to get more sites. Uh, they have to get more of the edge cloud data centers that they are getting from NTT. So those are also needs to be, so there is some delay on the, you know, the, the site uh, acquisition or site uh, enablement. What I can tell you that we had five milestones. First one was in October 2018. Milestones five is October 2019. We have delivered on those four, five milestones. And those milestones was SLA, KPI, carrier grade. We are not there, but I can tell you that not only it's working, we have, as of today, we have more than 3,000 sites already deployed in Japan. And it is a cloud native. We have fully virtualized all the, the baseband function. So in the case of uh, Rakuten and the scale, so 50,000 macro sites where they don't have, because they have fiber, they have a lot of fiber and cheap fiber. But we also just heard that, you know, you are not going to do 5G anywhere in the world if you don't have fiber. At least you will not do, be able to do all those use cases that we have been talking about. So I think there's going to be a lot of fiber uh, that is going to be uh, um, deployed or, or, or reactivated in, in many countries. But uh, the 50,000 sites, they are, instead of having all this equipment at the site, the baseband is we split in two parts. The central unit, which probably is the easiest part to virtualize, and this will go in two data centers, 
Osaka and Tokyo. And the other half, which is a DU, the distributed unit, and that's where you do the, the hard work, that's a real-time processing. They're moving from 50,000 sites to 4,000 sites. So that's a huge you know, impact on the CapEx upfront. But the most important part on the, on the Rakuten network is that because you have a horizontal platform, but you are virtualizing, now you are able to manage this as one single cloud, and you can do a automation. So the automation part of the network is really, for me, the most important part, more than just the CapEx, is that they are going to be able to not only deploy, but run the network, manage the network. So if you look in Japan, on average, KDDI or NTT Docomo, and sometimes they will have anything between 1,500 uh, you know, engineers, technicians. Rakuten is going to manage a network probably between 130, 150 people because they are able to fully automate the network. So that's where, when you add the CapEx savings as well as the OPEX savings, the equation, the economic value that you have is completely different. So the fact is that you know, it takes a bit more time uh, for them to, to reach the scale that they, they were initially planning. Uh, but again, uh, no, uh, <laughs> to build a new network from scratch usually takes much more time, uh, but it's working well, and I think there will be more news coming uh, from Rakuten uh, in, in coming, uh, coming weeks uh, about uh, the progress, but uh, we have delivered uh, what we were supposed to, and obviously there's you know, more uh, fine-tuning, but it's, uh, it's an interesting model because uh, the Rakuten uh, network uh, even if Nokia did participate uh, in the, the initial phase with their, their radio, but interesting enough, they accepted to open their interface, proprietary interface, uh, working with our software. You have uh, new radio vendors. Uh, you have uh, AltioStar for the software, the, the baseband. You have uh, Red Hat uh, for the OpenStack uh, running on Cisco infrastructure as well as you know, uh, uh, x86 uh, uh, servers uh, all the way to the data center. So you have, and then you have the OSS, the next generation of OSS. So you have four, five, six companies instead of one. Those four, five, six companies have to work together very well in order to deliver this new open uh, architecture. And, and that's what we have been doing. Um, so two questions on, on that, on the, on the ecosystem. Uh, so, I like uh, the picture you draw of a rolled out virtualized network that is very easy to automate, and I'm pretty sure this is music to the ear of uh, operators. But I heard you also uh, talking about an ecosystem that went from five to 40 players uh, uh, very rapidly. That means operators will have to speak to a lot of different players, and they will have to play an integration role. And we, we know they don't have like a very strong track record for that. Uh, one of the things they valued a lot from a, a traditional vendor is this ability to offer a turnkey solution. So uh, how does that affect your conversation with operators? So it's very clear that it does, uh, does change uh, you know, the overall operating model, uh, but also the definition of system integration. So first, we, uh, even if we are providing the software, we are taking the responsibility of the overall, you know, radio solution. So from the, every radio is certified by Azure Star that's going to work with this uh, you know, open, open RAN software. Uh, we are doing the same uh, with the OSS. So there's you know, a kind of a pre, 
uh, integration at the system level that things are going to work uh, together. So it's not the operator to do that. So we are behind, uh, and this is part of the SLA, that this solution, even if it's an open architecture with elements coming from different vendors, this does work, and this is, uh, we take the responsibility. What we see is two different types of system integration. One, remember what happened when Amazon and uh, Azure and Google they went and decided to do also their own infrastructure, their own you know, compute. They had to do also their own integration, their own system validation. You know, the DevOps model was obviously uh, invented not by you know vendors. It came from the, the people that have been you know uh, had use of the technology. So we see that, and Rakuten is doing. Why Rakuten? Maybe it's easier for them because they come from the IT side. Uh, Rakuten has obviously experience of having already IT, you know, uh, you know, DevOps environment and development and the way they manage their IT data centers. So that's it. But what we see is two things. First, there are some other companies who are not participating before, who are participating. Because now that we are, as I said before, if you are moving things to the cloud, it's a different type of integration. So now you have companies like IBM, company like VMware, who are going to participate in this space and being also leveraging the experience they have in the cloud. And you can make the case, which is certainly true, that AWS and Azure are also going to participate because they see also an opportunity when they look at how can they host new application to serve you know, new markets, including, including the, the, the enterprise market. And then you have Maybe not all of them, but you have some operators who have decided that they need to make the transition. So we call it in our strategy, you know, Greenfield is either like Rakuten. They uh, say Rakuten, they can do that. You know, they don't have a legacy network. First, it's not so easy. I mean, <laughs> and they have the courage to do it. Uh, good news that there are going to be other Greenfield operators, and some are public, but there will be new entrants in some key markets. But also there's what we call brownfield. So the brownfield are all the legacy you know, operators who have already networks uh, and, and proven, optimized uh, operating models. So for them, we don't say, hey, Mr. Hans-Versberg at Verizon or uh, other CEO, you need to change tomorrow you know, and go green 100%. What we do, which is probably the smart thing for them, is to do green on brown. So you start to insert because there is new use cases, there's new spectrum or new, there's always new, dense, you know, a need for densification. So you can, in fact, insert this new architecture as an overlay or existing, in fact, which uh, may not be known, they could even keep all the existing radios coming from uh, uh, Nokia, Ericsson, and, and Huawei and run this open uh, architecture, open run architecture. The problem that obviously the vendors, even if Nokia decided to do it in Japan, uh, the traditional vendors will be very reluctant to accept to open their interface unless one day they will be obliged to do it. And that's the promise of Oran. So if people who are following what's happening in the industry or on, for, to close the gap on 3GPP is to have this Oran initiative, this consortium, which is going to have this specification which are going to allow, allow now to have operators to choose different elements some different vendors. So what we have seen is some of those vendors who have decided not to wait is to start to green on brown. So one is public because they just made an investment in Algiostar, is Telefonica. Telefonica 
has two major market needs at this point, still develop, deploying 4G in Latin America and going with 5G in Europe. They have decided for both topics that they want to go with this new architecture and new, not only architecture, new business model. Telefonica has already issued RFP, which is one for radios, one for the software, one for the servers, and one for the services. So it is not the fact that it's going to create more complexity. In fact, we are simplifying dramatically uh, the way the network is going to be designed. I mean, if you take Rakuten, one site using the traditional model will be at least 50 SKUs. We have 10 SKUs. Mm -hmm. so just one, you know, very fact-based uh, situation. So we believe that we can simplify the network, we can automate the network, and if you do those two things, then obviously it's much different agenda in terms of what does this system integration mean. One last very quick question for you. Um, we, we know that uh, in Washington there is uh, a lot of questioning around uh, creating more alternatives and maybe uh, a national champion uh, amongst telecom equipment manufacturers in like the destructured or like the disintermediated world you describe. Does that make any sense? Well, first, uh, obviously the 5G topic has been very much in the news for some time. I would say the China situation has been even also even more in the news. And when you correct the two, you know the situation where, where, what we have. Uh, and, and the U.S. government, and that, you know, here to judge is are doing the right thing or not. But uh, I just came back from Washington because, in fact, they didn't know. I mean, they didn't know that, uh, you know, there was an alternative to the traditional model. So they say, okay, if it's not China, Inc., uh, then we have to buy from those two, uh, you know, companies coming from Europe, which, frankly, as I said before, are not in a great shape, which is, you know, an, an issue on its own. But when they discovered that through this innovation, innovation is happening in the U.S. And people, you know, this is where funding is always happening in the U.S. And the scale of the funding, even if it's a challenge to, to invest in this space, like, you know, networking infrastructure, this is where the innovation is happening. So that's number one. Number two, with this new architecture, instead of having one vendor, I say it's not to recreate a, another Huawei or an, another Ericsson, you can now, with this approach, leverage not just the innovation coming from small companies like us, but you can now leverage Qualcomm plus Intel plus Red Hat plus Altiostar. Those companies are building the network in Japan. So now the message to, uh, uh, to uh, Washington, D.C., two things. First, there is a U.S. supply chain, end-to-end. -end. We, as the U.S. industry, we can build a 4G and 5G network in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. So that's a message which was very important. And second, you know, we need support. We can accelerate by having policies. So two types of policies. First, if you're going to, you know, make sure there's connectivity broadband to the, to the masses, to, the, to everyone in the U.S., we can do it now in a very different model. You can even do a cloud-based cloud network that will help you to serve many more people at a fraction of the cost. So if we are talking about U.S. tax money, it can be used in a much more efficient way. The second point is, at some point, the operators in the U.S. will show the way by saying, my next generation network or my second wave of 5G network will have to be based on open architecture, open interfaces. 
That's the only way that they can also for themselves create a platform that's going to attract application, application developers who now will be in a situation to really leverage the network. Okay, thank you very much. That's my message.